there is a huge difference between what we call folkloric dance and that we put these other dances performed on stage. Most of them are in, uh, influenced by Mahmoud Reda and the Reda troupe uh, from the beginning, and uh, and they, they developed. And what the traditional dances that are actually uh, the real, the hearts of, of every Egyptian, let's say, like the traditional dances that are part of the traditions. And here, the traditions, it's more than just dance. You have music, you have dances, you have practices. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Belladance Live podcast. I'm your host, Jana Komarnitska, and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are our regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Belladance art form. Plus, I really like like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends, and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes, or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for 7 days for free. As our stay in Egypt continues, I am extremely happy to meet new incredible people, incredible artists, and one of them is Morjana. Originally from France, she is currently based in Egypt. She is a professional dancer, choreographer, researcher, teacher, as well as percussionist exploring sounds of Darbuka. She is a winner and award recipient for many dance competitions. She started as a regular belly dance route, exploring belly dance, oriental dance. But some time ago, her interest switched mainly into exploring folklore. And folklore not as a dance on stage, but folklore as a actual practice, actual tradition, which is still alive in Egyptian society. Morjana is also part of a several music projects here based in Cairo, including Estabene and Ehna Talata, as well as part of Seidel Artist Music Group, and she specializes in organizing tours to Egypt for dancers interested in exploring local culture, music, and dance. In this conversation, we of course talked about the very beginning of Marjana's interest in Egyptian culture, music and dance, how she uh, first learned Arabic language, then her first visit to Egypt, how it happened, what were the expectations and the reality of life. And of course, we talked a lot about folklore, various local traditions and how they stay present and part of day-to-day life of Egyptians. Special place in Marjana's heart is dedicated to Tahtib, and although I even highlighted it in the title of this episode, but we talked about way more things than just about Tahtib. So for those of you who want to understand and learn more about uh, 
Zar, Zikr and other practices, you will find a lot of information here too. But we also highlighted and talked in depth, or I kind of feel we only scratched the surface, but it was already a lot of information still, about Tahtib as a practice, not just as a dance. And, of course, we talked about Marjana's uh, projects, current projects, including her guided tours for dancers, which I think can be a great resource for those of you who may be interested in exploring and seeing all the things that we are, we will be talking about in today's episode, but may not be able to reach them out or find them on your own. So, Marjana can be a really great guide and source for you to fulfill your dream of seeing and experiencing all the things that you will be hearing in this episode. So as always, trying to do my best with these episodes, immensely grateful to all guests who agreed to come and participate in the interview and very grateful to you as our listeners and as our audience. It would be great if you can screenshot and share this episode with your friends. I'm sure you know people who will be very curious and thankful for this piece of information that will be provided in our this today's episode so please don't forget to do it tag me i like seeing who uh, our listeners are i like to read share your posts your stories and until next time keep dancing keep studying and keep exploring more You know how many guests we had previously on this podcast sharing how much their experience with BDE pushed their dance career. You can have it too. Join one of the BDE experience intensives and get the training and experience of performing in lead and ensemble roles. Open for Raksharki and Fusion styles. Details and training materials for the casting are available at www.joinbde.com. Direct link in the show notes, joinbde.com. Welcome to the Belly Dance Live podcast, uh, Marjana. I'm so happy not only to meet you in Cairo, uh, but also to be able to chat and connect and talk to you um, in person for this interview in your lively apartment. Let's give people some <laughs> setup. So thank you for agreeing to participate and thank you for welcoming our podcast at your home right now. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here with you today. And uh, yes, and welcome to Cairo because I know you've arrived not for, um, you've been here for some time now, but you're still new. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying what every Egyptian is uh, telling to you, even after staying here for seven years. Oh, welcome to Cairo. Welcome to Egypt. Whenever they see you are a foreigner, it's like, welcome to Egypt. So I'm telling you, welcome to Egypt. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Shukran. <laughs> um, you already like almost like Egyptian. You're so many years already here. Obviously, I'm like... Uh, generalizing this but before we start talking about your Cairo chapter of life I actually want to go to the very very beginning uh do you remember where you saw ballet dance for the first time in your life Ooh, where did I see where well I saw ballet dance when I was a child actually I so I, actually I'm originally from France I've been raised in France and um, but both my parents they are not from any uh, oriental Arabic background my mother from my mother's side we have a sp- uh, Spanish roots and more from my father's side we have our roots uh, from Madagascar or like Reunion Island and Madagascar but this is uh, but that's that's my 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 background but as such we 
we so I didn't have any connection with the Arabic countries. That's what I mean. So, um, but my first ever, the first time I saw belly dance was actually on TV because in France we have some movies uh, that come every now and again, especially in the in the holidays. And uh, we had this movie uh, Alibaba et les 40 voleurs, so Alibaba and the 40th Thief. Uh, uh, with Samia Gemel and Fernandel, the actor Fernandel, who is a, actually he was a favorite actor of my mom. So we used to watch this movie every year for Christmas and with Samia Gemel inside it. And she is inside playing the role uh, of Morgiane, who is actually uh, one of the characters of 1001 Nights, I mean, of the story of Ali Baba. So she's the, the dancer, the one that uh, Ali Baba falls in love with. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so basically this was my, the first time I encountered Oriental dance. It was by Samia Gaman herself on TV. And, uh, for me, this was, well, yeah, back then maybe I did not fully understand what is she dancing. I didn't have, okay, this is Danse du Ventre. So, so belly dance, like your belly, uh, is moving. This was how it was called even by my parents or by, by the family saying, oh, yeah. So we did not connect it with Egypt or with, uh, like we didn't call it oriental dance or so it was something new something wonderful but I had no really clue what it is as such the same as the music obviously I didn't know much about any of this um, uh, but then later on I got more and more attracted uh, by Egypt and by uh, I mean by Egypt I got passionate by Egypt also as a child because at school we started learning about the ancient Egypt and the hieographies and the pyramids. And I wanted to learn how, I mean, ideally I wanted to become an Egyptologist. So I was thinking, all right, I would love to discover all this. But of course, I think a lot of children want, are dreaming about this. And then at some point they forget, right? So it was my case. At some point I just forgot about this. Uh, but I had this passion for Egypt as a child. and. And uh, then later on, I started, I decided I wanted to learn Arabic. So I, it was later on when I was in uh, high school, um, I was actually 16 years old. And uh, my neighbor was actually um, uh, from, from Algeria. And uh, her Arabic, like the way she was speaking to me often was a bit mixed, like in French, but also with some influences of other words. And uh, she was actually the, like, uh, she, I mean, I really loved her. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, I was spending a lot of time at their house as, as a child. And I decided at some point, I realized that actually I, I did not fully understand what she's telling me because she could not speak proper French. Her, her language was a bit mixed. And then I, I thought, okay, wow. So actually she's not really uh, speaking French because when I was a child, I thought that she speaks French. I did not realize that she was speaking another language. And then later on, I realized that, oh, actually, that's not 100% French. She's actually mixing and I don't fully understand everything. So then I thought in a very naive and idealistic way that, oh, I'm going to learn Arabic. I have this option in one school. I can go uh, to this city and I can learn Arabic. So I signed up for one high school and I learned Arabic. It was my as a foreign language. And uh, then I came back to her and I started speaking and I realized that actually uh, she was so excited and so happy. But at the same time, it was not the same language she was speaking because she was speaking a mix of Derija, which is uh, the Algerian uh, Arabic mixed with French because she had lived for many, many years in France and her children are French and they speak fluent French. But it's just that her, she never learned the language when she settled here. So, yes. And so then I realized that actually there are many Arabic 
Arabic language is very rich and you have different variations and different accents. And uh, yeah, and then, but so I was a bit disappointed at first that I've learned something in school, but I, I cannot use it in everyday life. I cannot really, it's not so useful. But at the same time, I was happy because I learned how to write. And uh, uh, so I, I started already my, this journey of like this linguistic journey, which is important until today for me. I like learning languages. And for me, when it comes to communicating with people from different cultures, I need to learn the, the language. This is how I, I communicate better and how I learn more about their culture. And I feel more, yeah, more connected with the people. So then you see here, things started to be like to link with each other. And I was at that point thinking of studying Arabic, becoming a translator at some point, something like this. But in the end, it did not happen as well. Uh, uh, in the end, I got the opportunity to go and study, actually leave France. And I was 18 years old and uh, I had my uh, A-level and I had the option to leave France and go to study to in Poland. So instead of going to Paris to learn Arabic, actually, I, I decided to go uh, to go to Poland. So I learned a new language, actually, from zero. And here I put on hold somehow my dream of... Uh, of going to Egypt, of learning more of this Arabic language mm -hmm. and Arabic music, Arabic culture. And, uh, and I learned something totally different in Poland. It was a totally different experience. However, after the first year I was there, I actually joined my first class of Oriental dance. How did that happen? So actually it happened, uh, well, first I was very, well, different ways but one of the i was thinking about it for a long time i wanted to join formerly a class because i had attended some workshops in the past of little dance here and uh, my background in dance was more contemporary dance i was so in into contemporary modern dance and yeah when i was in high school i i started with contemporary dance actually back then but the Memories of Samia Gamal on TV still brought you mentioned you were attending a couple like here and there workshops where yes. they about Egyptian dance. I was I, I actually attended a, a few workshops by your local teacher. But what I didn't say is that I, I'm I come from a countryside. I come from a small city called Dijon. It's in Burgundy and uh, actually from the countryside near this city. And we didn't have actually Oriental dance teachers. So actually, even if I had wanted to attend Oriental dance classes, there were no teachers and I had no clue. Uh, you know, the internet was here, yeah, somewhere, but the, I had no clue how and where can I attend this kind of dances. So actually I attended workshops of what we called world dances. So Danse du Monde, we had a little bit of flamenco, a little bit of Oriental dances, a little bit of salsa, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So I attended these kind of workshops and I attended at some point so a workshop taught by an Egyptian teacher who barely spoke French and uh, here she was teaching Saidi for example using uh, the cleaning uh, how do you call them the um, broom the broom yes so she gave us a broom and she said yes this is a workshop of typical Egyptian dance and she gave us a broom and with this broom we had to dance and I was like I was not fully you know, and it was wonderful because this lady also, she was just Egyptian and she had this passion, but she, she didn't know how to transmit, how to share her knowledge. And, uh, you know, and she was not a trained dancer either. She was just sharing her dance. So we were repeating two movements for one hour with a broom in the hand. And, and you know, so things, I did this kind of workshops, but it never really connected. And I never really could recreate and see from Samia Gamal and the broom and dancing. It did not fully make sense. 
But it's everything came to, to its place when I really formally joined the first dance classes uh, that I with a teacher, a dance teacher in Poland, in Krakow. I was living there at that time. And then I started to learn actually the basics of uh, like the movements, isolation, how to isolate the movements, uh -huh. all these kind of things. But the way I was taught, however, was also very disconnected from the, the culture itself. Because this is, I'm very glad that, that I started learning this way, but very fast I was, I was pushed forward to competing and to, okay, here if it's, this is Oriental dance, you need to compete. Because this was actually the fashion was, uh, at that time and until today, the fashion in Poland was actually to compete. And uh, you need really to compete and win competition and, And you are representing your school in uh, in the country and outside of the country. So I ended up, for me, this was intriguing and I liked it. And I said, okay, I'm going to do all this. And I ended up actually competing for, for Poland. Even I, I traveled to Belarus actually at some point to, to, to represent the country. And, and I, I actually won two competitions like in folklore. Like as I was a champion of Poland uh, in folklore. While actually I'm not even Polish. And I, uh, in the end, and the people in the audience and the, the judges, have, I think they had no clue about folklore. And at that time, I have to admit that I think I had no clue about what I was doing myself. Because at the end of the day, I was uh, dancing Khaligi dances and, and Kaoleya uh, dances. And uh, okay, but I was taught by workshops how to dance, technically speaking, how to dance those dances. But mm -hmm. I had not enough background when it comes to understanding the culture behind it. Mm. And for me, this was always something that I was missing. I was always thinking, okay, something is missing, something is missing. And, um, and then when I realized that this was missing, I started uh, to attend workshops with Egyptian dancers only and Egyptian trainers, master classes, workshops. So I stopped having a teacher actually in Poland. I stopped having a regular coach, a regular teacher, and I just attended workshops with actually people that like Khaled Mahmoud, for example, uh, Kazafi, for when it comes to, to folklore classes, so Mohamed Kazafi. So I, and here I discovered actually more about the dance and more of the dance that I wanted really to learn. And this is how I, this is how I, I developed in my dance, yes. And at that time, I started to teach also some workshops in Poland to do some replacements, some teaching as well, so, some classes in Krakow mostly. Um, and in some, some local festivals. Mm. Yes. But for me, this is at the same time, this all happened during my studies. So I was still studying at the same time. And, uh, yes, I, I was still passionate about Egypt. So for example, my master's thesis uh, was about Egypt. Uh, I did a master, uh, actually in political sciences and, and development studies. And I focused on Egyptian civil society. So it's a bit disconnected from the dance. But still, it's, it's about Egypt and about the associations, associations here in Egypt and how civil society uh, was present. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I had this passion. I wanted all the time to connect it with the dance, but I always found that it's not always easy. And uh, uh, yes, but at the same time, getting to know more about Egypt, even the politics of Egypt and the history of Egypt actually taught me so much about the dance itself. Mm. So... For example, when, when it comes to understanding more, because my, my, now my, in the development of, I mean, in, in my own uh, development, personal development in dance, I am more uh, in a stage when I'm focusing on, on folkloric dances. Um, that's pretty much my main interest and ballet as well. So I'm pretty much returning to the roots of a dance. That's what I am looking for. I'm looking for this, going back to the roots of a dance. 
even if it means being a bit disconnected, maybe to some extent uh, from oriental dance, the way it is performed in cabarets or on, on the stages here. Uh, but for me, this is my main focus. And when I, I think of um, when we speak about actually the folkloric dances in Egypt, it has to be connected with uh, culture, with uh, history, with uh, politics. Um, it is connected. It is extremely important to understand all this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah. So in yes, as a summary, I end up. Uh, yeah, if I want to resume a bit of this, I end up actually uh, everything I did in here and there in my life. If they were little pieces of a puzzle that in the end is taking shape now, only I would say that for many years I had these pieces at some point and until today I might think, okay, this piece doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in the puzzle. So I might put it aside for a while, but at some point it is here. And I have a feeling that this is how it works. And uh, yes, and for me, at, at actually that's how it works. So I have this puzzle and all these pieces and all together they are making actually uh, more sense. Mm. Yes. That's so true. And there is a saying like you can connect dots only looking back. Mm. Sometimes separate dots right now at this moment, they make no, no sense. Uh, wow. What an incredible story. But I must say, like, how was your first visit to Cairo? Uh, my first visit to Cairo was actually with, during my studies and it was in relation with my focus, with my actually my master thesis. And I was a member of a, an association, a, a youth association, uh, a youth organization, and it was in 2011. So at the moment when the, all these changes happened in Egypt and uh, we were invited in Alexandria by a student organization and we had a common program, uh, an exchange program done between Poland, between Krakow specifically, and uh, and uh, Alexandria. So that was my first time I came here. It was actually not at all related to dance. Of course, I visited all the places. I went to the pyramids. I went to Khan al-Khalili. I bought myself uh, some costume, some a pair of Isis wing the, and a, um, a saber as well that got broken on the way back. I was so disappointed about this. But yes, so I, I did all these steps, I wanted really to see to see this part as well. And I bought myself some CDs as well and uh, some fresh music. I at that moment, Mahraganat was really on the on, on the rise already. And uh, so I was also observing this, how the Egyptians are, are listening to this kind of music and getting crazy uh, on this music. And at that time I was, was thinking, okay, but Um Kalsum in all this, where is Um Kalsum? You know, and everybody was thinking, Um Kalsum, yes, that's wonderful. You know, Um Kalsum, great, but this is Mahraganat. This is a different story. And they were so excited about Mahraganat. And uh, of course, this developed even more. And until today, it's, it's, yeah. it's, very important as a music genre but uh, yes i was very interested in music and uh, i had also i was singing in a choir at that time and uh, we were singing some arabic songs as well we were trying to sing some arabic songs and and in, i was where? in krakow in krakow, in krakow? yes oh, wow. actually our trainer was from syria uh, he still is there actually there is a, a choir in krakow uh, led by uh, wasim ibrahim so he's actually a, a composer and a choir leader and uh, so i actually started singing with him in his choir and uh, we were singing in arabic and for me it was also again yet another p part of a puzzle and when i came here and i saw the mahraganat music and all this I was, it's not a disappointment, but yes, I was expecting to hear more, uh, a different type of music. So it was actually a surprise. 
Um, and he taught me a lot directly about how the idea, the misconceptions I had about Egypt and how it looks in reality. Mm -hmm. And yet it was, it was a short program. And then after this, I decided that I, I need to come back to Egypt, but I need to settle here. I need to stay here for a while to get to know really the culture. Because at the end of the day, just coming here um, as a tourist, it's not going to teach me much and it's not enough to really discover the country. And uh, so then I got a job opportunity within the, the French ministry, actually, to start, work, start working in uh, the French Cultural Center in Alexandria. And again, it was a sign, Alexandria, that was the first city I visited in Egypt. And this is where I got this job opportunity. So I said, OK, I'm going, I'm going there. So that's how I arrived in 2016. In, uh, in Alexandria, and I stayed there for two years working for this local um, cultural center, uh, working with youth, mostly with schools and organizing events, theater, play, theater events, music and dance events as well. So for me, it was also uh, being, observing how the Egyptians are, are, are performing as well, how the, the, the art is seen by regular, normal Egyptians. Do they like, don't, they don't like, how they, they make fun sometimes of belly dancers, etc. So at that time, I was not telling that I had a background in dance. I was never telling anybody that I'm a belly dancer or anything related to belly dance because I knew that even my colleague at work, they actually were joking about belly dancers. They were all the time so disrespectful to, to belly dance. So I was extremely careful and at the same time observing how, I mean, watching how do they do they speak about this art form that uh, often is not even considered as an art form? That's the thing. Like for me, I consider belly dance, oriental dance as an art form, of course, but for them, it's nothing related with art as such. So, uh, and it's, there are so many elements, of course. Some, some Egyptians would consider this as an artistic form, of course. So I'm not, let's not generalize, but, uh, but many of them would just uh, focus on the, in an, on the negative side mm. um, and be quite judgmental about it. So, yes, and after I finished my, my, um, my work in Alexandria, I decided that I still wanted to stay in Egypt and uh, that I wanted to also improve my Arabic. And uh, so I went to Cairo to stay for an intensive Arabic language. And then I, I stayed for longer. And now it's been basically seven years. In October, it will be exactly seven years that I'm here. And uh, while when it comes to dance, I have to admit that my, uh, in the end, I didn't do a formal career in dance. I didn't, I'm not a professional uh, dancer here on stage. I wouldn't even want to uh, be a professional oriental dancer soloist on stage. Um, I was missing recently uh, the, the feeling of being on stage. So actually, I came back to stage uh, as a member on a, of a folklore troupe. So now I am actually a happy member of the AUC alumni folklore troupe. That is a, a troupe led by Pinky Selim, um, who is a graduate from the AUC and a former student of uh, Mr. Mahmoud Reda. And basically, I'm really happy for this experience, actually, to, to be a member of a troupe here in Egypt performing. Um, so I'm the only foreigner in the troupe. The rest of them are only Egyptians. And, uh, and for me, it's, it's, it's actually, I'm, I'm happy with this experience. Um, and uh, even though it means that, again, uh, it's not the same as performing with a cabaret as a soloist dancer, it's a totally different experience 
from actually uh, soloist, yes, like soloist dancer, uh, oriental dance on one side and on the other side folklore. It's uh, two different stories, of course. Mm. And uh, the type of stages we perform on, it's, it's, it's totally different. And uh, yes, and aside from this, I'm also developing actually my interest in music. So I'm playing tabla, learn darbuka, so the percussion, the oriental percussion, I'm learning and at the same time playing, doing some concerts uh, with my teacher and uh, who is uh, actually quite a famous teacher, Saïd Araptis. He is a, um, yes, he's a teacher and, and performer. And um, and then also in a small group band that uh, we play Mediterranean music, Egyptian and from the Mediterranean all together. So yes, I'm developing also this side. And uh, yes, so I got a bit further from from uh, the com the world of competitions and festivals and all this. I do enjoy attending festivals even here in Egypt, but I got quite tired of uh, these bubbles because sometimes you when you attend and uh, you see how disconnected these bubbles are from actually reality from how how dance is here dance on stage um how is dance performed here i mean it's it's the dance that we have in cabarets here is totally different from the dance that we see in like, these festivals like what like what's the main difference what's like for example the, the the way it is danced on stage so for example when you have a festivals and you in order to perform you need to uh prepare a choreography that would be last exactly from two to three minutes maximum so you need to cut the music accordingly all right and you need to show in these three minutes as maximum like all all you can do like you, you showcase all your steps uh because you want to win a competition or because you know that you have some important people in the audience and you want to attract the eye of, of this, this and this person uh, this create or, or forces you to, to dance in a way that uh, is might be a bit different than the way here uh, a, a performer would dance when it's more of an entertainment. For example, you are here to entertain the audience. You have the whole song. You don't need to cut the song. You just enjoy the song. At the same time, you need to understand the song and you need to uh, to present an artist uh, like like to, to be actually present on the stage, the, the, like what is most important actually is not necessarily all your skills, like the technical part. You don't need to prove to the audience that you can do shimmy with a reserve, uh, reversed camel and adding on this uh, some more isolation and plus the head and the wink. And you don't need to think about all this. You don't need to prove this to the audience. Okay, look, I can do this. You need actually, it's a different it's a different show together at the end of the day. You are here really to, you need to be present. You need to, to, to share something with the audience. It's, uh, um, well, it's a different story altogether. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, and also the fashion, the music itself. Like I see that in the, on the festivals, we still have a lot of uh, this influence of Tarab and everybody wants to dance on Tarab and uh, on Oriental, doing some Oriental routines. So of course, uh, some, some Mejancé and so on. Of course, you can still dance a Mejancé uh, in a cabaret. Aziza, for example, she's great at this. She, you see her in a cabaret and she starts the show with a Mejancé or, and, and you think, oh, wow, that's amazing. And for, for me, it's just wonderful to see her perform like long songs or, and, uh, and mejancé uh, on such a stage. But uh, indeed, it's quite rare. Now you don't have so many 
Um, Yes, very often you would have people like dancers performing rather um, like in, in clubs, they perform on modern music. So the music, sometimes it's even dif dif difficult to uh, define what is this music. Is it Mahraganat? Is it Shabi? Is it modern? Is it... Uh, so they just perform on modern music, on the music that is on the hits of right now, on the, 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 what is actually listened to by everybody. And without asking yourself, okay, um, what am I dancing right now? Am I dancing a shabi or am I dancing a mahraganat? They don't ask themselves this question. We, you just perform on the song. While if you want to perform in a festival and you want to take part in a specific category of competitions, for example, you need to ask yourself, okay, with this song, am I going to the Shabi competition? Am I going to the fusion competition? Am I going to, uh, to which category? And in the end, you don't know, you don't have the answer. And then you can still be disqualified in the end because the judge in front of you would still consider that the song you picked doesn't fit the category. So, um, yes. So I think that, uh, that's, that, that in brief, being in Egypt and having this experience, observing the world of belly dance and the, the bubbles of the festivals, and at the same time, seeing how belly dance, oriental dance is also here, viewed by the society, it, it gives some kind of distance to the dance. Like, um, so, which is not a bad thing. I think it's good actually to, to take some distance to, to it. And at the same time, understand that the, this dance is alive uh, it's uh, it's under so many influences and developing all the time, and uh, we cannot put everything in boxes the way we would like to. So, if a song or a type of dance uh, we want to dance it, okay, you can dance it because you enjoy the song. And sometimes it's impossible simply to say, okay, this this is in the box. Uh, for example, shabi. This is in this box and not in another box. So sometimes it's simply you need to accept that. Maybe it's not possible to to tight to to label everything, and I know it's difficult because when we want to learn or and when we want to teach a dance, uh, we want to give a tool to the student to understand. Uh, okay, this is this type, this kind of song, this kind of dance, but sometimes it's difficult to simply put one specific song in one specific category. Yeah. So maybe the simplest is just to admit that okay, this is such a cultural based dance this is the culture in the background and it's so important so we need to understand that this is alive and we cannot just label it and create new genres and oh yes yeah, so in the end yes we cannot label everything that's what i mean like we cannot uh, yeah yeah, it's, I'm sorry, I spoke too much for so long and oh, in the end great. it went it went, it went, in all the directions. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Well, you're <laughs> making sorry. my job easier. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Like, and uh, I'm really glad to, to hear like everything that you're sharing. And uh, like, you know, it's this combination of personal story, how your journey brought you to Cairo and then also seeing, like observing the environment and from a perspective of like, okay, foreign dancer uh that you had dance background before you came to Cairo and you're still like for so many years here so it's this blend of like not being Egyptian but still living here and like seeing your observations uh, that's really interesting but on this point I want also to ask because you mentioned that your current focus is mainly in the folklore styles so do you have right now if to say do you have one sort of specific 
center focus that you're trying to learn more like of this style or for you it's more observant as much folkloric styles and knowledge as possible like or you kind of like right now for instance uh trying to get more like special not specialized in style but deepen your knowledge in just one direction mm-hmm. Wow, uh, that's a great question. And at the same time, what, the answer is also not as straight as this. I'm not focusing on one thing in particular. I'm a very nerdy person, I can say. I, when I start to dig and to get interested in something, usually I can go very deep in looking and getting a lot of books and, and resources and then asking people and getting more information on specific topics. So I do sometimes focus for a longer t- amount of time on one specific type of work folkloric dance for example but I like to have also um, a general vision of, of everything so my initial observation is that there is a huge difference between what we call folkloric dance and that we put these other dances performed on stage most of them are in uh, influenced by Mahmoud Reda and the Reda troupe uh, from the beginning and uh, and they, they developed and what the traditional dances that are actually uh, the real, the hearts of of every Egyptian, let's say, like the, the traditions, the traditional dances that are part of the traditions. And here, the traditions, it's more than just dance. You have music, you have dances, you have practices. So, for example, what I'm super interested in is uh, everything that is related with the mawalid, with the mulid celebration. So the mulid are the, 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 the day, the birth of specific saints. Saints, okay, let's... In short, let's call them saints. So, for example, you have different uh, saints in, in Luxor. You have uh, Moulid Abul Hagag. So, Abul Hagag, who was one saint, it's, he's a patron of the city. You have Moulid al Nabi, of course, that is celebrated every year in Egypt uh, by everybody. So, the Moulid of a prophet, Prophet Muhammad. You have Moulids, Mawalids in plural, that are also Christian Mawalids. You have, uh, actually, now it stopped, but you had also at some point a Jewish Mawalid, a Moulid as well in Egypt. So, you have different Moulids that are in different cities and uh, that are go through all the religions in Egypt. Like, actually, the, the Mawalid, uh, this type of celebrations existed already back then in, in ancient Egypt. They didn't call it Mawalid by then, but they, they had this kind of celebration so um, so I'm very passionate by these uh, these traditions in particularly in considering that during these days you have a lot of uh, parties people meet they have fun together so here it involves of course music and dancing uh, you have also because it's a spiritual day uh, you have also the different zikr so the zikr the remembering the name of God so zikr is one of um, spiritual practices practiced in Egypt. In Egypt, you have mostly three main spiritual practices like this that can lead to trance. So you have uh, tanura, the whirling. You have zar, which is mostly uh, like to practiced by women. And uh, you have a zikr that is practiced by men mostly, but depending on the different congregation, Sufi congregation, sometimes some women can also practice uh, and do a zikr. It's not only for men. So um, so I, my, my, I'm passionate by this topic, for example, that is not 100% related to dance, but also to dance. Because for example, during a zikr, you have some the body is also, um, there are some movements that are repetitive and uh, you can observe this. And when, if you want to create, for example, on stage, a tableau that could be a, a folkloric, let's say, tableau or 
oh, rather a character dance, and you want to create, let's say, a spiritual tableau, you want to show the atmosphere of a moulid. Mahmoud Reda, for example, created some choreographies like this, uh, inspired by the atmosphere of a moulid. Um, and uh, during such a tableau, you use the whirling, you use so the tanura, you use the repetition of the movements, like in the zikr. Uh, so, so these elements, I, I like to observe them, I like to understand more from, from them, um, because it's, it's actually, um, well, there is here you need to understand more about the history, about the, 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 about the religion as well, because some of them are, are rooted with, uh, in, in religion as well, uh, about popular Islam and about the popular practices, because also most of these practices, um, they are not well seen by the middle class and upper class Egyptians. So actually, sometimes it's funny because when I, I tell to the people, okay, yes, uh, I went and I attended Moulid, uh, Moulid and Nabi uh, in this little city next to Luxor, and people look at me and say, why did you go and attend the Zikr? Why did you go? And you see, and I saw the Rifai. So for example, I saw one practice of Zikr from the, the Rifai order. So it's one of the, the Sufi order. And uh, they were dancing with uh, sabers, with, um, uh, with uh, sabers, yes, we say like uh, um, swords? Swords, yes, swords, swords. So they were dancing with swords and putting the swords in their mouth, for example, and jumping on top of them, etc. So you understand that here we are in a practice that is, uh, they, are, they were trying, basically the, the idea is that they are trying to push the limit of the body and get closer to God, to their own belief through pushing away, uh, like the, the body has not such an important, uh, is not that important. They want to prove to themselves that they are stronger in a way. Um, in, a, in, in a simplified way. So basically when I am telling to people, to Egyptians that, okay, I attended such a Zikr celebration and they look at me like I'm crazy. Why? Why do you attend such a thing? This is, these are so uneducated people. This is not culture. This is, and they actually themselves disqualify all these practices as their own because they think that, no, it's not proper. You know, the same, I, uh, for example, I had uh, the chance to attend um, Raksat el Hosan, so it's the dance, the horse dance. So it's one of the practices also that is still existing until today. What is interesting is that all these practices, uh, these dances, exist until today. So, for example, Raksat el Hosan, this is, you have live music, and this is a dance that, the, a dance that is done by the a horse. And this dance, so this is done in practice, uh, in the field, in, in, uh, in Upper Egypt in particular. And at the same time, this is performed on stage as well by the national troops, the Kameya troop and the Reda troop. They perform a tableau called Raksat el Hosan, in which the two people dress up as a horse and they dance with a, la a girl who, who lead them and they dance. So there is a whole tableau created around this theme. So, uh, so of course, like here, um, I mean, I'm not inventing anything by saying this, but you can, of course, inspire yourself in creating new things uh, from the, inspiring yourself from the real folklore, let's say the real um, traditional traditions and putting it to stage. Uh, yes, and, and this is basically, that's, that's my main interest, I would say. Mm -hmm. That's how, how the, um, yes, if I want to, to answer your question now, let's answer your question. <laughs> Uh, my main interest is to see how the folklore, like the tradition, the folklore is put to stage in sometimes 
to a level that is not even folklore, it becomes almost fake lore, as some people say. Uh, so with the character dances, sometimes uh, they are very far from actually the real thing, and how the real thing is practiced still, and how it is considered by others as well. And uh, at the same time, always remembering that what is authentic, what is not authentic, at the end of the day, what is practiced uh, by, by everyday people, it's, it's the experience of every individual and maybe, uh, for example, in a, some Nubian dancers might perform their dances in, in a way like this or like this, but they are inspired by others, like they, they so by watching, for example, Reda troupe or watching some regional troops, you can get some inspiration as well. So, um, so it goes both sides. What I mean is that at the end of the day, uh, it's not like one category, like the dances that are done on stage, and one category, uh, like uh, Reda troupe inspiration, and one category, uh, the dances, uh, the authentic dances. No, I would say that there are a lot of. Uh, uh, bridges between these and crossovers. So, so yes, it's and and yes, and there are a lot of in, in these fields in this section. Like, basically, there is a lot to to observe, to watch actually to to see. And uh, so, I'm really interested in all of this and uh, both in a practical and um, a theoretical level. And for example, when I was telling you that sometimes I focus on specific things. So recently, I was focusing mostly on side dances. So I attended several workshops uh, of Saidi dances. Um, with the AUC folk troupe as well, I have a pleasure to be performing one of the dances, the iconic dances of Mahmoud Reda, uh, the Asaya choreography, which is also a very important choreography uh, um, choreographed by, by Mahmoud Reda. So I have the, I can see how the women are supposed to dance in such a choreography and the men, what kind of different steps are for the women and for the men, for example, how the, the women don't, the female dancers don't use the stick, for example, almost in the choreographies of Reda troupe. So while in Kaumeya troops, for example, the women use more of a stick. So it's, it's sometimes it's interesting to, to see this. And then in the Saidi dances, the way we learn from master classes and uh, teachers, we learn often the Saidi dances as we can perform them in a cabaret style. So it's also different. So we use some element of folklore, but performed in an oriental way. And finally, um, I decided that I was missing the core of it, which mm -hmm. is a tahtib element. So uh, last year I attended like um, a workshop, like a long uh, three months workshop with uh, a tahtib teacher. Who, three months, like yes. it's a course. Almost. It's a course, it's wow. a course, yes. I mean, it was cool to workshop, but it's a course. So I attended a course, yes, that started, started in August and finished actually three months later, later. And we performed together. And until now, we, we work together. And I'm trying still to develop my, my, my skills, um, my limited skill, um, <laughs> skills I'm adding, because actually, Tartif, this is a fascinating topic. But this is actually extremely difficult. It's not as easy as, as it, it may seem. Uh, to be really able to feel that confident and uh, have enough technique at the same time not to hurt yourself because when the person in front of you in a duel really feel that okay you are in control they do their thing and you need still to be in control all the time to be sure not to get hit by the, the stick at some point because it, it can happen 
let's so, clarify here because we are talking about Tahtib not just like as a dance or a solo dance or a group dance. We talk about here about Tahtib as a practice. Yes. Which, so that, um, because I know some of the, our listeners may not be familiar, like, okay, but okay, Tahtib, why would you hurt yourself? Okay, you may, during the practice, maybe the stick will fall off your hand, but what does it have to do uh, with another person? No, so no. let's clarify that Tahtib is actually a practice. And I know if you can, go a little bit deeper that would be awesome like that tahtib is also related this practice to many celebrations like the ones that you were mentioning and it probably has presence in many celebrations but maybe some maybe some of the celebrations are closer connected to specific tahtib practice than other ones so if you can a little bit explain and clarify because i know some of the listeners may be confused just from the dance circles like mm-hmm. oh but why would you be hit in tahtib <laughs> yes actually tahtib tahtib uh it's not a dance first of all so if you speak with tahtib practitioners they consider it a game or they consider it a martial arts or a fight So it's a game or a fight, but it's not a dance. Uh, While, of course, you have this aspect that uh, in this practice, it's a duel, so you have two people fighting one another. But there are some rules, of course. It's not like you you enter with your asaya with a stick and you stop beating the other. It's not like this. You have a lot of rules, starting by the beginning of each duel that starts with a salam, so the salutation. So it's an extremely polite game at the same time, because you start by saluting the person, the opponent. And then you start by having the, um, the first sway. So you sway the asaya, the stick on top of your head. It's uh, called the rasha mameya, uh, the, the rasha, which is, it means swaying. So you turn the asaya on top of your head. So that's the beginning. It's like a warm up and it's a kind of game with the other. Everybody, like each one of the, the person, the practitioner sways it on top of the head. And it's, let's say, the beginning, okay? And then only the duel really starts, and during which the main goal is actually to touch the head of your opponent. But you need to be in control. The key word here is control. You need to control your stick and you need to control yourself because it's a game at the end of the day. So, so you don't really want to touch or hurt the other person. Uh, but of course, with the adrenaline and the excitement of the moment. And also, let's remember that this is practiced with live music. So with the mizmar, it's very loud. So the music also carries you very, very, like carries you. Uh, and sometimes you get very excited. And, and that's why you need to be careful and know how to always uh, protect yourself. So you have some, uh, some attack technique and you have some protection technique, let's say. And you are trying to avoid to let any chance for the opponent to have a piece of your body that is available for him to touch, let's say. It reminds me of the practice of fencing, but in Egyptian style and with music. <laughs> yes, the practice of fencing, exactly. That's one of the fencing uh, traditions, yes. And uh, so this, is, this practice is still existing and uh, I had a f- uh, the chance to, uh, to take part, I mean, to observe, to watch them, to watch the, this practice in Upper Egypt during Mawalid as well. During the Muli, during the celebration, the same celebration, this is the best moment to see these because then these are big events and all the practitioners and the best players come from all the region to come meet, enjoy their time and play together. So that's the best moment to see all this. And here I have to, um, to highlight that this is practiced only by men. Mm-hmm. So when I explain that I'm learning this and I've been training this, I've been training in a training con- um, setting, uh, like, yes, in a training context, meaning that I had never the chance and I will probably never have a chance to really go in a competitions like they do in Upper Egypt and just enter the, the ring, let's say, and start, yeah, it looks like a ring, it's a circle and the people sit around it. 
and watch watch the the, the performance. I mean, watch the the the, the the game. But it's also it's always you know uh, every player has his own uh, individual character and they have their tricks and their personalities. So it becomes also a kind of a performance. It's a game, but slash performance, I would say. And uh, when you watch the show, you have a reaction of the audience. Like people react, ah, oh, you know, like it's a football match, you know. They are watching, oh, he missed it. Oh, you know, and they shout and they, and they laugh. And in the end, you go and you shake the hands of your partner because that's that's the game. But in this context, it's it's not at the day of today, it's not feasible or not thinkable that I, I as a woman, would enter such a circle mm -hmm. and start start playing with them, because it's simply not. It wouldn't be accepted, even if I were to wear a male galabeya or you know, sort of a male outfit. Uh, and here, actually, yes, during this uh, my training of Tartib, I, uh, I, we trained in normal clothes. But in the end, when we wanted to present the outcome of uh, the whole course, actually, I ended up wearing the male uh, galabeyas. So if you want really to practice Tartib, Tartib, even if it's in the context of on, put on the stage to some extent, uh, then in this case, you take in a way the characteristic of a male pay player. Mm -hmm. So that's also an interesting here. You, you need to be aware of this. That, and that's also why uh, in uh, Reda Troop, for example, and Mahmoud Reda himself, he wouldn't choreograph uh, for, the, for his troop uh, a piece, a, a choreography of Saidi with a female, with a woman uh, doing trick with a stick, because traditionally the stick is used actually by the men. So that's why, uh, even if the woman, yeah, the woman, the female dancers, okay, they can take the stick and dance a bit with it or do something with it, but mostly it is a, a masculine world. So uh, that's why in the end, this tartib element is more played by, done by, by men. But of course, uh, nowadays, when you go and see a show of a woman as well, are uh, taking the asaya and dancing with it, which is good. And uh, I mean, internationally, on the international, um, than seen, but here in Egypt you need to remember that there is this that it's not that uh, that obvious. But where did the element of Tahtib or Saidi as a dance comes? Because it sounds like you know, like okay, it's a game, it is covered by by uh, music, but the this idea of dancing or what we call in ballet dance circles Saidi dance or Tahtib dance is it actually traditional as a dance? Or was it more like a recent thing, maybe after after Mahmoud Reda put on stage and everyone started doing it as an actual dance? Because when we talk about Saidi or Tahtib dance, we are not really pretending on stage to do a fight or a do with mm -hmm. him. It can be solo, it can be group maybe, mm -hmm. but such thing as Saidi or Tahtib dance, is it actually a traditional thing or it's a recent thing? No, actually it is a traditional thing as well. Like you have already uh, performers, Rewezi dancers, when it comes to female dancers, who already had tableaus and they were performing with the sticks, imitating uh, of some movements of uh, coming from the Tartib, for example, movements. Uh, and you have also for the men, you have the, the Jiheni and the Nizawi dances that come from Nozha and from Jihena. It's two cities uh, in Upper Egypt. 
And here you have some researchers such as Magda Saleh, Dr. Magda Saleh in her thesis, or uh, Samir Gaber, who is an Egyptian researcher. And he made a whole atlas of Egyptian dances, folkloric dances. It's available only in Arabic, unfortunately. But um, yes, you can get his books, actually. Uh, now, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he's considered in Egypt as the main, the most important researcher, actually, of folklore, folkloric dances in Egypt. And um, he made his research, uh, like he, he wrote about this, the dances of uh, the Jiheni and Nizawi dances. And these dances, this is similar. Probably you've seen, I know from, from people, the audience, it's not easy to depict, uh, to imagine how does it look like. But basically, you have a live music and you have a couple of steps that are quite repetitive and you have a stick with it. And this is what you would do. Um, you would start dancing and uh, naturally, the different people dancers would repeat the same steps one after the other and together. So it creates a kind of dance style as if they, are, they have choreographed these steps. And this is very simple. So you have usually one step forward, one step backward and with the, holding the stick. And this is how this dance looks like and starts, uh, starts. And then you can develop and go in your own solos, in your own way, expressing yourself, playing with the sticks, of course. And in the context in Upper Egypt, then uh, you have also the tartib, the tartib that is actually you have tartib, which is the day game, and you have also dances. And uh, so dances, saidi dances, and it's different types. It's not just one type of saidi dance. When you say saidi, you might think, okay, that's the one with a stick and you dance, and that's one type. But actually, no, it's not a uniformized dance. You have different, mm -hmm. different dances. So, for example, the different dances done by the Rawezi performers with a stick, these are also saidi dances. Uh, they have uh, different types of, of dances uh, with a stick, like Jiheni Nizawi, they call it this way as well. In the, when it comes to Aulad Mazen, Banat Mazen, which is an important family uh, in, uh, from Luxor originally, now only Khairia Mazen is uh, an active performer from this family. So they have these uh, two different types of dances uh, involving the stick. And then you have, of course, the Nizawi and Jiheni dances that comes from these two cities I was explaining in uh, Upper Egypt. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, you have various, like any city and any person can actually dance their own way with the stick as a solo form. They just take the stick and just start dancing on the music, interpreting the music. And it can be on any kind of music. It doesn't need to be um, like a very precise song it can be a kind more of a ballad piece or like a solo instrument and you dance on it and you feel the music and you perform to it so for example i've uh, have attended a few parties like this uh, in luxor where the, the dancer would just take the stick and just start dancing uh, after a couple of beers i have to admit they, <laughs> so they drink and then they start dancing with a stick just on their own, uh, following the music. Uh -huh. So it's also it's also a sidey dance. It's uh, of course it's not the same kind of dance you would put to the stage. Um, no, it's it's different. Uh, it's just performed like this by locals who are not also performers, who are not dancers. They are just dancing. They are not, you know, because this dance again is uh, is uh, is practiced and it's not just it's practiced by everybody, not only by professional performers. It's also practiced by uh, non-professional performers, just regular people who just dance and enjoy, enjoy themselves and enjoy the music. And, uh, and this is the beauty of it. And that's really something that uh, catches my heart when you, I see a person dance and uh, 
without being a professional stage trained person, but she's just enjoying herself and dancing to the music. That's just lovely for me. It makes my day. And um, yes. Wow, that's a lot of like insights, you know, that we as dancers don't really see, like we use, especially those dancers who are mostly focused on festival arena and stages. And we don't sometimes put connection between what we see on stage to what's happening in real life. So that's really cool. And thank you for sharing. I'm like, even I got so many insights. There was one thing that I want to sort of insert to clarify, because I know maybe not all of the, our audience may be familiar with these terms that you use several times tableau. And not to be confused with tabla solo has nothing to do with ah, it. Not tabla solo, tableau, yes. Yes, of course. Uh, yes, and here also about Saidi, just finishing about this, it's uh, so mostly this dance already exists from before uh, and everybody can perform a Saidi dance. But the way we see it usually, again, here we need to thank again Mr. Mahmoud Reda because uh, him and his in the Reda troupe because they are the version that we usually know and we see performed is mostly inspired by this initial version that was actually put to stage by Mahmoud Reda and the way the steps are done. So the, the way of performing the steps, like one step and then the, the other leg up, etc. This all the way of, of codifying it so that it's something we learned and we the different folklore teacher teaches us. Usually it's mostly inspired by, by this school, yeah, let's say. So that's the mainstream school of Saidi, let's say. I'm not sure we can call it this way, but this is a mainstream side, let's say. When it comes to tableau, what I refer to tableau, uh, this is a term that is used, uh, it comes from French originally, it means a frame or, um, yeah, it means a, a frame or um, a painting. It can be a painting, a frame, it's, uh, so that's the original ter term of it. But the way it is used in dance, uh, in character dances uh, and uh, as well in Egypt, this is used in Egypt. That's why when I say tableau, this is the way actually people use it here yeah. as well. Um, tableau, tableau head in the plural. Uh, so this is actually a number, a stage number that is choreographed and in which you are presenting, um, uh, let's say you are presenting a character, you are presenting um, for example, if you say, okay, that's a Saidi tableau, you, it's not necessarily the same as a Saidi choreography. A tableau might be deeper. You might have, for example, you decide to have a, in the background some specific decorations or some specific, uh, um, like fake palm trees. And then you're going to use, for example, a fake, uh, fake, uh, horse. And you're going to enter and create a world, create a tableau, create a, a story, create something that when the audience will watch it and will see, ah, it's like a painting. It's like a, a story, like here, there is something that is painted. So that's the idea of a tableau. So in, in character dances, it's often used to define this kind of, of, um, of uh, stages, of uh, choreographies. Yes. So that's, what, that's why I use and I repeated tableau. Yes, without explaining. Um, yeah. No, it's sometimes like <laughs> many dances will be familiar already, but I know some dances may not be familiar and it's always better, you know, to clarify. Of uh, course. Or it's the same. Even sometimes I like in different conversations with people, I, was like, I realize, oh, I don't really know the term. Mm -hmm. And it's also this uh, teaching uh, mentality in the dance community. Like it's better to ask even if you 
feel shy that you don't know something that not to ask yes of course and here the the pronunciation as well sometimes because of how each one of us pronounce differently we might also get mixed up not understanding okay what is she saying is she saying tabla indeed it could people might say it's tabla no it's tableau it's it's a different uh, term but it has nothing to do with tabla solo in it nothing to do with it so speaking about uh, exploring egypt Cairo and exploring uh, folklore dances. I know that since recently you start uh, organizing some kind of like tours and helping dancers who can't visit Egypt to dive into these topics more. So can you share a little bit about your experience of doing these tours and if you have any events coming up for, for maybe end of the summer or middle of the summer or autumn, fall, so people can uh, possibly Think about joining. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, yes, I uh, this year we did the second edition actually of a tour that we called Fanana. It's actually it means uh, artist in in Arabic, and uh, that's a, a tour that we organize in Egypt. The first edition I organized it with a friend of mine from Poland, Dominika Suchetska, who is a teacher there, and it was in 2019. So this was the first volume before Corona and before all this. We organized it during the summer at the same time as Ahlan wa Sahlan festival. And then we had two parts. One part at the festival, we wanted to attend the festival and show and participate in it. And in parallel, uh, have a sightseeing program, plus some events going, attending some show, uh, some additional program. So that's how we built it back then for the first edition. And now this year, we decided with Dominika as well, that's my my partner from Poland, that's, uh, I mean, with whom I, I co-organize this tour. And now we have another friend of ours as well, Kasia Vronka, who is another dancer from there, from Poland, who also joined the team, the organizing team. And this time we decided to do something that is uh, only us, like we created the whole program. And uh, basically um, we focus on the live music, working with live music. So here I, I was really super happy to to, to work with um, uh, Mohamed Reda Band, who is actually uh, uh, quite now, he, he's performing with his band quite everywhere. We see him attending and participating in a lot of events. Um, but so what is great is that we had actually um, like uh, great musicians and uh, many of them. Like we danced with uh, with Kanun, with uh, um, with the accordion, of course. We had also in the percussions we had the, the rig player, for example, Nai uh, for the so the flute. Uh, uh, the violin, uh, plus of course the keyboard, etc., um, etc. Et so basically, it's it's just that when you travel, uh, when you are abroad and you are organizing a festival, sometimes it's difficult really to to bring a whole full band to play, and usually you end up having events with one keyboard and one tabla player. Uh, like one darbuka, one percussionist, and one yeah, one keyboard. The keyboard can play everything, of course, but the the taste, the type of music, sounds, the way it sounds, the way you can interpret it is totally different uh, from the original instruments. So here we worked a lot on acoustic during the trainings. We had actually we organized three four workshops, uh, one workshops with live music, one workshop with Kasha, one workshop with Dominica, and one workshop with myself. And in parallel, we had also uh, time to train on the music and with the music. So each per- participant had the possibility to do, train their own songs. So they pick, they picked their songs 
And we uh, we helped them, we guided them in how to perform with live music as well, because it's not always that easy. Uh, and uh, here in in our case, it was they were all beginners or like coming to Egypt for the first time. Not all not beginners, but coming to Egypt for the first time and performing with a live band for the first time. So it was a lot of first times. So yes, so we and in the end, our, we organized. Um, um, a show uh, in local theater here in Cairo, and uh, it was it was lovely because I, I saw how all the girls are enjoying and how it was the culmination of the tour. So actually performing with uh, with the orchestra in the background and and it's 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 an incredible opportunity. And again here, very far from the atmosphere of a festival where you have competitions or these kind of things. No, it was us. Open stage, everybody is enjoying and everybody is supportive of each other. So we had uh, we had really a great a great time. Of course, in addition to the classes with live music uh, that we organized um, and we, we taught ourselves, we had of course classes of folklore with uh, Ahmed Refat, who is, in my opinion, uh, I mean he's one of my teachers and. Uh, that's why I, I recommend him for every tours and uh, like uh, I, I like to work with him. Uh, so Ahmed Refat, for, he taught us um, a Saidi workshop and then we had a class as well with Dina, uh, Oriental class with Dina that we don't need to present. Of course, Dina, the one and only Dina, uh, also uh, super interesting. And in part, and also we had in the program that was extremely intense uh, because it lasted nine days, uh, eight nights, and it was really from the beginning till the end, uh, nonstop. We had visits, uh, like of course sightseeing. We visited the new museum of civilizations. We visited the pyramids, uh, old Cairo as well, um, and then we also uh, attended shows. We went to show two to watch two belly dancers perform in two different. Uh, hotel and cabaret, and we went also to see to see two folkloric shows, and finally we did also a photo shooting in the countryside because we wanted really to offer the best experience. And um, when actually when when Dominica and Kasha came to me and said, "Okay, we want to do a photo shooting as well," and I was like, "Okay, girls," because. Uh, Okay, let's do it, but it's a lot of work. It's not that easy and it's Egypt and it's, uh, we have only nine days. How are we going to do all this? And in the end, I'm, I'm kind of proud that, that it was managed and we, we handled to doing it and, uh, all by ourselves, uh, just, uh, so yes, I'm, I'm super happy of, uh, of his success and, uh, everybody was super, super happy of the tour. And of course, we are planning to renew this. So, um, most probably at the same date. So around at the beginning of May next year, we will probably do the, the next edition. Let's see for the full program. I'm still working on it and I will see with, uh, with the co-organizers, how are we going to do this? And, uh, but I, before this, I'm also planning some other tours. So actually, um, in, uh, for Muni de Nebi, Muni de Nebi, which is, as I explained, I, I told you a bit about the celebrations. So the celebrations for Muli de Nebi, the Muli, the, the day of a prophet, Prophet Muhammad, you have actually a lot happening, such as, for example, the Zikr, etc., that you can attend and watch. Tartib games in Upper Egypt. So uh, here my purpose is for Moulid and Nabi to have a small, small group, very small. Uh, we still have, actually, I already have a few people who want to come, but uh, I haven't opened officially even the sign up or everything. I haven't announced any program officially, so it's everything is still not announced, but I already have a few people interested. 
And uh, the idea is to go and attend the Moulet in uh, Luxor during these days. So that it's, it's really a one-of-a-kind uh, experience. And probably then finish uh, for more relaxation a couple of days on the cruise from Luxor to Aswan uh, to finish the program so that we can go all the way to Aswan. And in addition to attending classes uh, of Saidi, Tahtib, and also of Rewezi dances with Khairi Amazin in Luxor, we will also attended, attend some workshops uh, of Nubian dances in Aswan and then from Aswan we go back to Cairo so it will be something this time it's it's a small small tour I am not taking a lot of participants because uh, the experience is different when you have a big group for example this time uh, for Fanana program we had uh, a big number of participants we had 15 participants uh, um, plus, uh, plus more, some more people. So we had something like 20 people. Uh, uh, we were gro groups of 20 people and more. Uh, so it's not, it's not easy to go everywhere. For example, if you go outside, uh, to watch a dancer to a club already, if you arrive 20 people, you are already feeling, uh, you know, not half of a club, but half of a room. Yes. So actually, if you want to get a chance to really experience and, and see Egyptians uh, around, not just us, the participants, it needs to be small, small groups. So here the same for Luxor in particular, for this kind of events, uh, local events, it needs small groups. So that's my idea. And here also I've been doing this like uh, for myself uh, as my own little research and, and travels and development. I've been for Moulid Abul Hagak, for Moulid El Nabi already in Luxor. So I know well the the, the the city and the places and when it comes to sightseeing there is a lot to see as well so i'm not saying more because again uh, as i said it's uh, it's in the making and uh, and for now i haven't announced yet the program officially yet but uh, it's there and for sure there will be a few more uh, there are some spaces uh, like places free for now because as i said um but i will announce it probably it will get filled very fast um, because also on here, I have also a collaborator, a person with whom I am also um, uh, working. And uh, so we are already many people interested in, in this. And uh, yes. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yes. And let's see, by the time this interview is out, maybe you will already announce, maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe already sold out. But I will definitely include links to your social media to the show notes of this episode. So all our listeners, you know, you can easily contact our guest and find out more and follow uh, your activities and inquire about this tour or any upcoming events and make sure like uh, do it sooner before they are completely sold out. Uh, I also encourage everyone to check links in your uh Social, through your social media in Instagram because you have a lot of different uh, lectures that are available about topics that you didn't even talk to so that's all available there and uh, I already almost want you can we do part two of this interview <laughs> 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 there's so much more like to yes. explore too uh, but before I ask our traditional like final question to summarize our today's conversation which is part one uh, I also want to thank you so much for your time and for your willingness to and openness to share all this knowledge and all your story that uh, you went through and you gathered bit by bit and sharing here because it's a lot of new things I'm absolutely sure for many of our listeners. So thank you so much for sharing and being open to participate on the Ballet Dance Life podcast. Today. Thank you, Yana, for inviting me, for having me. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> 
And to summarize our conversation, I will ask you our traditional question, which the question which I ask every single guest, regardless of what we talk during the conversation. And I'm excited to hear your reply. So the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance or Egyptian dance in general, that you keep doing it? What makes you fall in love with it again and again, so you keep doing it for so many years? Wow. I would say that uh, what's, what keeps me going with this dance, this art form, is actually how alive is it. It is, and how actually it is developing, and it is not something like that we are learning and that does not exist anymore. It's not something that that is stopped at at, at the moment in history, and now we are all learning this, and uh, and uh, this is a code, and that's how it has to be. Uh, like it's not ballet, you know. Ballet is lovely, of course. I, I and I would do attend classes of ballet, and I like it as well to develop your technique. But at the same time, ballet it's like it's stopped at an, at the moment. And uh, I feel that after some time, you can always improve your technique and go on. But uh, it's not alive the way Oriental dance is. Oriental dance is really alive. It has so many uh, layers. It has so many variations. It has, at the same time, some codes. And at the same time, no code. Like, it offers so many options. And um, so it makes you want to learn more, to try new things. Of course, it's not uh, like I was comparing it to ballet. It's not the same as ballet where you have a code that you start dancing and already you learn how to do uh, first position, second position. You learn all this and it's very clear. In Oriental dance, until today, uh, you have, of course, some codes, some codifications, some technique, and you can learn this. But depending on your teacher, on the history of your teacher, where... Uh, the background of your teacher, many teachers of Oriental dance started with ballroom dances before, or they started with ballet before, or with contemporary, with other type of dances. And these influence of, on their dance and on their way of teaching. And uh, I see this as something that is actually, it's a wealth, it's something that is positive. Although, of course, we can, sometimes it's also something negative because you can say, okay, so it's not the, the real oriental dance. So uh, I see that this is what wants me, I mean, this keeps me going and trying to learn more and discover more people also, discover more teachers, uh, discover just simple people that would share some elements and uh, share a passion. And uh, this, this motivates me to go on, actually. And... Um, Yes, this is this is really it, I would say. And how this dance also, this is this is such a cultural dance at the same time. The culture, the background, the music, the importance of music. Today we did not tackle too much on the music, but at the same time, I mean, there is so much to say about music and musicality and how you can work like uh, with the dance. It's not just as sometimes, of course, there is these stereotypes. People say, okay, you are just shaking and, and doing some shimmy and that's belly dance and, and halas, that's it. But actually, no, you can express yourself fully with this dance. You can express so many emotions and, um, and you can also discover yourself and uh, share this with the audience. You discover a new person inside you. This dance is very internal as well. So it requires to be open up to this, to the fact of opening up simply, opening up to oneself and to the world. And uh, so this is really something wonderful with the dance. 
This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, bringing more consistency and more fun into your dance training online. Check it out at yanadanceclub.com, direct link in the show notes. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends, as well as leave a review on iTunes or any other app you're using to listen to the show. The more people know about this podcast, the easier it is for me to bring even more awesome guests. Until next time, keep shimming and keep dancing.